Our great Father, thank you that in Christ we have salvation and the redemption of our souls. Thank you, Father, that though we are sinners, our fathers are sinners, our first father is a sinner, and we live on a world that is sometimes referred to as the kingdom of the evil one, yet you have rescued us out of it. Help us to soberly think about the things this morning, but help us to rejoice in our Savior at the same time. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, Why don't you, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Genesis chapter 3. Be a good place for us to start. We're going to read the whole chapter together, and then we'll discuss various aspects of the lesson. So in Genesis chapter 3, the Word of God says, And the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. 
Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now let us reach, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. When we last left our dynamic duo, they were naked and happy. They were at rest and at peace with God. And yet we don't live naked and happy, at rest and peace with God. So what happened is the question that we're trying to answer this morning. What went wrong with the creation? Now, this is a very somber and sober passage. So how about if we start with a laugh? After all, we are in Christ. And so I would like to just play for you a brief uh, little thing here. It's on. Let me see. Hopefully it works. Just listen to this. It's just a little joke. Women always have more questions than men have answers to. Great example of this. Six, seven months ago, I get a text one day. The text says, please pray for Tom. He was in a bad wreck. I walk into the kitchen where my wife is. I said, hey, I just got a text that said, please pray for Tom. He was in a bad wreck. She said, was he driving? I said, I don't know. I just got a text that said, please pray for Tom. He was in a bad wreck. Were Carol and the kids in the car with him? I don't know. I just got a text that said, please pray for Tom. He was in a bad wreck. Were the people in the other car hurt? I don't know. I just got a text that said, please pray for Tom. He was in a bad wreck. What hospital did they take him to? I don't know. I just got a text that said, please pray for Tom. He was in a bad wreck. She said, well, you don't know anything. What do you know? I know you need to pray for Tom. I just got a text that he was in a bad wreck. That was Jeff Foxworthy. I don't know. I just got a text. There's a lot of questions that we might have about this chapter, right? Chapter 3 of Genesis might lead us to ask, uh, was it just Satan who showed up to talk to Eve? Or did he possess like a real physical snake? We might answer. I don't know. The text in front of me says that the serpent came to Eve and talked to her. But if it was just a regular snake, how did he speak given he doesn't have the biological equipment even to make human noises? I don't know. The text says the snake spoke to Eve. Well, was the fruit an apple? I don't know. The text says that Eve ate of the fruit that was forbidden. Well, is eating just symbolic here? Because we don't want God to be arbitrary in the commands. He I don't know. The text says that God said don't eat of the fruit. Uh, just a little humor to get us started here because there's going to be things we just don't know about this chapter. We don't know all the details of how everything happened, but what the text says, we believe. And fortunately, we have an entire Bible after this passage to help us make sense of everything that's going on here. 
So we know, uh, we know this story. It's been told to us. We understand that this is the place where sin and death enter the world because of the first man and woman's sin. We know that it was the serpent who came and tempted Eve in the beginning. And, and so this passage is relatively familiar to us. If we just give a quick overview of it, uh, we see that all of a sudden pops up a, a serpent. And the word here that is used for serpent is, uh, is just a regular snake. It's not uh, like the word Leviathan. It's not like the word dragon, although those words do occur in the Bible to describe the same being that we come to understand is in view here. Uh, But this is just a regular snake. That's the word that's used here. And the serpent comes and tempts Eve. Uh, He doesn't tempt Eve by coming to her and saying, now listen, Eve, I I would like to speak to you logically. Uh, God has forbidding you from eating this fruit. And I just want to lay out for you that if you eat of this fruit, you will be alienated from him. You will curse you and your offspring forever. I want you to know that pain will result from you eating this fruit. And and now that I've laid out all of the reality for you, I would like for you to make an informed decision. Satan didn't operate that way back then, and he doesn't operate that way now. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. He first comes to Eve, and he tries to make her question what God has said. He, he seemingly asks an innocent question. I heard that God said you weren't allowed to eat any of this beautiful fruit. We're allowed to eat of it. There's just one tree that we're not allowed to eat, and we don't touch it, or we'll die. And we see that Eve possibly begins to add to the Lord's command in her own mind, setting up a situation where the Lord might not be being fair to her. And so she is able to take one step closer to what the deception that is being given to her is. And then the serpent offers Eve wisdom beyond her wildest dreams. You could be like God. You don't have to be under His thumb. You can be just like Him, knowing good and evil. And so Eve takes a closer look at this fruit, at this tree, and there are three things that appeal to her. And so she takes the fruit and gives to her husband, who was with her, and they eat together. And after they eat together, the... uh, Sin has entered the world. It is all downhill from here. In fact, death entered the world in that moment. And the death that entered the world in that moment was the separation of the relationship, the severing of the relationship between Adam and Eve and their God. And so as we see the events unfold, God comes to the garden, and he asks a question. I tried not to be too harsh when I read the passage, but that is how I read it at home in my head. I don't read it. Adam, where are you? When I'm at home and I'm reading this and I think of myself standing in Adam's place, where are you? The way I might speak to my son 
if he has disobeyed and is hiding from me. Get out here. We're going to have dealings. You see, I, I, know, I know that God is a redeeming God. I know that God is full of love and grace and mercy. We, should, we, we know all that from the Word, what He has told us. But never forget that our sin is repulsive to God. It kindles in Him anger and wrath. And we need not shy away from that reality. We don't need to hide it or try to sugarcoat over it. When the man and the woman first sin, God is livid. He's angry. They've committed high treason. And if a treasonous person in the United States deserves to die, how much more so does a treason to God Almighty deserve to die? And so the Lord comes to Adam and he asks him some probing questions and Adam responds by trying to deflect responsibility. Uh, It is interesting that the Lord gives Adam the opportunity to say, I did it. It was my fault. I've sinned. I deserve to die. I'm, I'm to blame. But Adam doesn't do that. Sin's effect has immediately taken over Adam's heart. And Adam says, well, there's someone else to blame. You see, it's the woman. And now that I come to think of it, you put this woman here to be with me, so probably your fault. Eve, what were you thinking? Well, you see, it was the snake. The snake deceived me. All right, he doesn't even address the snake in this point. at this point. He, he just goes on to relate to the man and the woman what they have done and how it is going to affect their lives going further. He tells us, he tells the man that the earth is now cursed. He tells the woman that there will be great pain in childbearing. And he tells the snake that he is least of all creatures that have been created. In fact, the serpent imagery is used here in order to help us understand that Satan is beneath the feet of those who would follow God. And God tells the snake that his head will be bruised, even though he will inflict one wound upon the woman's offspring on his heel. At the end of the curses... God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden, banishes them from the temple where they were to live in peace with God. And having banished them, he puts, uh, he puts the cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the way into the garden so they cannot access it anymore. That's the basic outline of the chapter. We left our heroes at peace with God, living in God's temple, serving as prophets, priests, kings over God's creation. They were to have intimate fellowship with God. They were to be in the presence of God. They were to rule creation, naming all that they see and having dominion over it. And in one fell sin, 
they ruin it all. They ruin it all. And so we approach this text and we say, from a biblical theology standpoint, what are we to make of this? What is going to happen in the future? If these 66 individual books make up a library given to us by God to tell us the whole story of what God has done and what He will do, how does this most dark moment play into what we are to understand about the world we live in and how we are to live as disciples of Christ in this age? Those are the questions we want to answer in the rest of the uh, lesson. First of all, let's think about the, ser- the serpent for a minute. Anybody in here like think that serpents are cute? You, you like look at that snake and you're like, oh, that little tongue flicking around. I mean, you're a psychopath, but maybe you do. Maybe you look at the, that snake and you just think, oh, it is so cute. It just slithers around and it's, it's not icky at all. I'm not one of those guys. You put a snake near me and I'll be four blocks away before you know it. But I do want you to see that uh, the symbolism of, of one particular thing in God's creation doesn't always only have to mean one thing. Uh, for example, uh, Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And we think of Aslan, right? We think of the great king of the jungle, the lion who rules and who is strong and fierce. And and we think of Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. But then Peter comes along and he says, Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we need not throw up our hands and say, I don't know who the lion is, right? Because a lion as a symbol for realities uh, that, that God has established doesn't have to just be one thing, right? Or leaven. Are you ever reading Jesus parables and uh, leaven is like the evil of the Pharisees that works its way all throughout society and, and infiltrates, er, infiltrates every piece of the heart. And you think leaven's a bad thing. That's a bad thing. And you read another parable and Jesus says the kingdom of God is like leaven and it starts small but it begins to work its way through every part of the heart and expands out. Well, which is it? Is leaven good or bad? In the same way, uh, snakes in the Bible are not always, always refer to in a negative evil sense. Uh, For example, Jesus tells us that we are to be as wise as serpents. All that to say, there is a created thing called a snake, and that snake, I'm convinced, will be on the new earth. When God renews all things, there will be snakes. They won't be poisonous. They won't be a a reason for fear. They they won't attack and harm. Yet, I think they're going to be there because they're part of God's good creation. Yet, in the ancient world, the snakes gave people the heebie-jeebies. And in the modern world, they give us the heebie-jeebies, and rightfully so. Now, there are different ways that the ancients described the snake. Let's just consider the great sea snake for a minute. I just want to read for you the, um, the entry in this Bible dictionary uh, for the term Leviathan. We'll get to Leviathan in a minute here. But, but think about what the ancients used to think about this thing. It says, name of an ancient sea creature, meaning coiled one, subdued by God, 
Leviathan appears in biblical and extra-biblical literature. A serpentine form is indicated in Isaiah 27. The sea creature is used interchangeably with other mysterious creations of the divine. Again, Isaiah 27 refers to Leviathan as a dragon that is in the sea. The psalmist in Psalm 74 presents a many-headed Leviathan among the supernatural enemies of God dwelling in the sea. Job 3 and 41 present the sea creature as too formidable a foe for a person to consider arousing, yet Leviathan was created by God and subject to him. Apocalyptic literature depicts Leviathan as throwing off his fetters at the end of the present age, only to be defeated in a final conflict with the divine. Ugaritic literature of Ras Shamara uh, during the 1300s BC depicts the mythical Baal defeating the sea creature called Lotan, another linguistic form for Leviathan. The Hittites wrote of a struggle between the dragon, I can't say its name, and the mortal, can't say his name. A cylinder seal found at Tel Asmar dated about 2350 BC shows two men fighting a seven-headed serpent. Leviathan was seen in ancient legend as a sea monster engaged in primordial warfare with the gods. This creature represents chaos in a personified manner that any creator deity had to overcome in order to create. Leviathan was also seen as a threat to the orderliness of the universe and ultimately to be subdued at the end of time. The ancient pagan myths concerning Leviathan were familiar to the Hebrews of the Old Testament. To what degree these myths of Leviathan influenced the Hebrews, if any, may never be known. Scripture used the name known to so many people and removed fear connected with it, showing that God easily controlled Leviathan, which thus offered no threat to God's people." I just wanted to read that real quick to you to let you know the ancient people, the Hebrews, before even Moses gave them the Torah, the ancient people knew all about why snakes were creepy and off limits. It was part of their cultural imagination. They knew about Leviathan, that great sea serpent who lives out there in the deep and you don't want to mess with that thing. And they, and they, correlated Leviathan and dragons and the snakes of our everyday occurrence. These things were symbolic for them of, of the evil one. They were a personification of, of the great evil power that had to be subdued. Now, in the myths of the people around Israel, Leviathan is seen as this great... Um, competing power with the divine. And the divine has to go to war with the competing power in order to accomplish what the divine wants. But the Bible uses the language of the people in their day and refashions it, showing them what reality is really like. Instead of the great sea monster being something that Yahweh had to contend with in order to create his good world, rather Leviathan is part of God's good creation. In fact, God has created Leviathan and he rules over him. And to the extent that this cultural knowledge that the Hebrews possessed influences the way they think about the evil one, God turns it all on its head and says, I've created everything. When we consider creation and we think of all the um, chaos that ensued and God brings order to it all, 
it is he was there directly confronting the pagan myths about how there's this primordial chaos and by uh, and by strength and battle God had to form it into what it is. And in the creation we learn no, not at all. God is completely under control of all his creation and in the same way he is completely in control of Leviathan also. And so, when we find this serpent here in Genesis chapter 3, remembering our creation story, we ought to say, hmm, I bet God created this thing too, and it is under His complete authority. So, where might might we see this? Uh, Let's go to Job real quick. You knew we were going to go to Job eventually, right? If you could just turn to Job chapter 1. In Job chapter 1, let's just read verse 6 here. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that, he, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Look down at verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. What we just want to see here is that... Uh, In reality, not in the pagan myths, but in the reality that actually is, Satan is subject to God. Even when Satan's design is to take one of God's holy ones, a blameless one, one who fears the Lord and is seeking to live his life in righteousness according to God's law, even when it comes to Satan's attacks On the people of God, God is sovereign over that. Satan has to present himself before God. And Satan has to get permission before he does anything to any of God's people. Satan is a created being. He is not the the yin to God's yang. He is not a co-equal power with God that God has to contend with in order to bring about good in the world. Satan is completely created by God and he is completely under God's authority. So we might ask ourselves, well, how, going back to chapter 3 for a minute, you know, it says that there was a serpent that came and talked to Eve, but how do we know that this ought to be correlated with Satan? Well, we might have to wait a while. And I don't think we have to wait all the way until Revelation, but Revelation makes it completely clear that the serpent that we're dealing with in the garden is in fact Satan. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Who deceived the whole world in the beginning? It was Satan that ancient serpent, the dragon. Or we can go to Revelation chapter 20, just a few pages over. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, we read, And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him, 
for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. This Satan from Genesis chapter 3, this deceiver, is the one that we come to know by the personal name of Satan or the devil or Lucifer. Now, what does this term Satan mean? In Hebrew, the term Satan actually means the accuser. So when we think of what is ultimate evil, ultimate evil in the Hebrew mind is the one who accuses, who points the finger, who says, have you seen what Jason has done? And he is the the accuser of God's people. This is how we understand what the evil one is. Yes, he's created. Yes, he's under God's authority. Yes, he is all of this evil embodied. But at the end of the day, what is his power? What is he seeking to do? How? What is his program of corruption and destruction? Accusations. That's what the term Satan fully means. He is the accuser. And sometimes we fall under the weight of this accuser. This accuser remembers everything we've ever done. Let's not kid ourselves that the serpent isn't great in power, that he isn't skilled at at his craft, that he isn't one who seeks to bend all of all things that are at his disposal against us. He is great in power. And so we don't approach Satan and think, ah, that, that's light work. That's, uh, why don't you take care, you know, have you ever said to your son, why don't you take care of my light work for me, right? No, Satan is a formidable foe. And he seeks to accuse us and bring us into destruction. Jesus describes for us who Satan is. In John chapter 8, Jesus tells us that Satan is a liar and a murderer. John chapter 8, verse 44. You are, uh, he's speaking to the Pharisees here. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Jesus tells us that Satan is a liar and a murderer. He also tells us that Satan is the evil one. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 19. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom of God and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Um. Jesus tells us that though we are evil, we know how to give good gifts to our children. And in Genesis chapter 6, just a few chapters after Genesis 3, we're told that there is only evil continually in the heart of man. So this Satan, he's an accuser, he's a liar, he's a murderer, he's a thief, he is evil, and by his murdering, lying, thieving, evil practices. He has turned men into lying, 
murdering, thieving, evil creatures. That's what we're supposed to get from Genesis chapter 3. We're supposed to see that the serpent, the great adversary of God, has turned his sights on humanity. And because we are the image bearers of God and he reviles the image of God, he has set his sights to destroy, to bend us to his will, and to cause us to continually curse God. That's what he wants for us. And he succeeds in part with Adam and Eve, doesn't he? They've lost their prophet, priest, and king status. They have become like Satan in all the ways that we have just described. If Satan is a murderer from the beginning, then we are a people who abort our unborn babies. If Satan is a liar from the beginning, then we are those who will gossip about our brothers and sisters. If Satan is the one who rejects the truth, then we are the ones who have our ears tickled with the prosperity gospel and think that God wants us to be happy and healthy and wealthy and everything that goes along with it. Satan is the murderer, lying, thief. And he wants to bend us to be just like him. We see that Adam and Eve are exiled from Eden in chapter 3, and this becomes a great theme throughout the Word of God. God banishes, this is from the book, The Serpent and the Serpent Slayer. God banishes sinful people from his special presence, and he redeems people from exile. There's, here are some highlights of this theme that begin in Genesis 3. God exiles Cain to the land of Nod, delivers Noah from the flood, exiles rebellious people after the Tower of Babel, brings Abraham out of Ur, brings the people out of Egypt, exiles the northern kingdom of Israel to Assyria and the southern kingdom of Israel to Babylon, and delivers his people from exile in Assyria and Babylon back to the land. The climactic exile is Jesus' atoning death on the cross. And the climactic exodus is Jesus' resurrection. And the quote goes on. But I want you to see that just as Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, this exile and exodus is going to continue as a theme throughout all Scripture. But one of the things that hits us the hardest in... Genesis chapter 3 is this idea of death. Many of us have buried those that we love. And we are told not to mourn as the world mourns. And we seek to obey that. But that doesn't mean that we approach the death of our loved ones and and can say in truth, I am so glad they're in the presence of God right now. Yes, we say that. Yes, we comfort ourselves that way. But it is not wrong for us to hate death. It is not wrong for us to war against death. Death is an enemy. 
Why is it that when your body begins to fail you, you don't just go, ah, well, I guess I'll just go and be with God right now. You will go to the doctor and you will have poison injected into your veins to try to kill a cancer to preserve your life. Where does that come from? Why not just say, it's better to go and be with God. Let the cancer take me. It's because death is an enemy. We shouldn't desire the death of anyone, not ourselves, not our neighbor. Death has come to destroy God's image on the earth. And so when the image of God, the Lord Jesus himself, rises from the dead and promises us a resurrection like his, now there is hope. The Hebrews did not understand fully the concept of heaven and hell and resurrection. Oftentimes they would just say, when you die, you kind of go below. We're going to call it Sheol. We don't really know. And there are glimpses in the Old Testament of, of God being faithful and bringing people out of Sheol. But for the most part, we got to get to Jesus. And the worst death that has ever happened, it wasn't Adam's, it wasn't Eve's, it wasn't your loved one. The worst death that has ever plagued this planet was the death of Christ. And yet he died because the work of the serpent and the men, having destroyed God's good creation, Jesus' death reverses it. Jesus' death and his resurrection bring hope. And so this is what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 5 when he tells us that in one man all died, so in one man's life all shall be made alive. Jesus is the reverser of death. He is the true man, the true Israel, who has brought redemption to his people. And the creation is now cursed. Our final point. Creation is cursed. God tells Adam that there will be work, sweat, pain, thorns, thistles, Eve, pain in childbearing. I don't think that is just the pain of bringing forth children. That, that is certainly in view, but it's also the pain of rearing children and their rebellion and their disobedience. And we see in our offspring the sin that has plagued us and it continues throughout all generations. There isn't a child born that isn't born in sin. And we look at these creatures that we have brought forth, the Lord has brought forth through us, and we, and we say, how can you be such a sinner? We here don't look at our babies and say, what innocent little blank slates, they're going to grow up to be such good people. We look at them and we know that the rebellion that lives in us lives in them, and so they need a Savior also. The creation is now hostile to us. Hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, plagues, they all ravage the earth because it is cursed. It is hostile to us. But in all this, Paul reminds us that the creation is groaning. What is it longing to see? It's the same thing, believer, that you were longing to see. 
the revelation of the sons of God. When the sons of God are revealed in Jesus' return, the earth will be made new, no more hostility, no more groaning, no more curse. Just as Adam was to be the prophet and priest and king, the head of the human race, Jesus now occupies those three offices. Jesus is the prophet. In Acts chapter 3, we are told that a prophet like Moses will come, how we must listen to him. Jesus is the priest. In Hebrews chapter 4, we are told that Jesus is the great high priest and Jesus is the king. In Matthew 21, we are told that Jesus is the one who rides on a colt, the son of David, to take Jerusalem as his kingdom. What are we to do? We are to fight the devil. 1 Peter chapter 5, we, we, we heard before, said that Satan is like a roaring lion, but we must do battle with him. In James chapter 4, we are told to resist the devil and he will flee from us. Here we have the downfall of man. Here we have what came to end it all and Jesus has come to make it all right. the end. 
The end of the story is not Genesis 3. It is certainly not natural. We don't assume that our children come out and, and I guess it's just natural that they're this way. They have to rebel against their father because evolution, blah, 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 and we got a survival of the species and nonsense and, and death is just a part of life. And so we get we just go to the grave and we become food for the worms and that's the way it was just always supposed to be. Genesis chapter 3 was horrible. And equally horrible was the death of Christ. And yet the glory of what He has accomplished for us, He is worthy for us to look at Genesis 3 and say to the serpent, behind me, under my feet, your head has been crushed. I will resist. I will make war on my sin. I will live in the righteousness of Christ because He is worthy. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for our Redeemer. Thank You that He has crushed Satan and there will be a renewal for us. In Jesus' name, amen.